I hope you brought your Bible with you this morning and would like to invite you to turn with me to the book of Acts. Acts is the book we began studying this past October, and it chronicles the growth of the early church. It all starts in Genesis. In the beginning, God created everything after six days. There's everything plus a man and a woman. It's not too long before sin enters the picture. And from that point on, the remainder of the scriptures are God's plan to redeem his creation back to the state that existed in the garden. And through a long, drawn out and very dramatic age of God's dealing with one specific group of people, the Hebrew people, we get to a point in the Gospels where this man named John introduces the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. His name was Jesus from Nazareth, a carpenter by trade. He spends three years in ministry, takes 12 men to himself to teach them. They spent three years with Jesus and still didn't know much by the time they were done. Standing there watching him after his death, burial and resurrection ascend into heaven. And then he's gone. What do we do now? Well, that's the book of Acts. It starts with the ascension and it tracks, follows the development of the church where the people standing there were told by Jesus, you tell everyone what I told you. You'll be my witnesses here in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts of the world. Well, we're in the uttermost parts of the world talking about it today. And even in chapter 9, we still see the gospel going out and God bringing people in as their lives are changed by grace. So let's start reading. Today we're in... Really, the, the latter half of verse 19 in Acts chapter 9. I don't know if you noticed that last week when we quit, that this is one of those paragraphs that chops a verse in half. Sometimes it depends on the way your study Bible uh, separates paragraphs. But where we are is midway through verse 19. And if you have little chapter titles before your paragraphs, it may say something like, Saul proclaims Jesus in synagogues. We'll begin reading there. Acts eight, nineteen. For some days he was in the with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man that made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Verse 23, another paragraph. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot came, became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But the disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. Verse 26, And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas 
took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem preaching boldly in the name of the Lord and he spoke and disputed against the Hellenist. But they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Verse 31, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. This is God's Word and let's take yet another moment to ask His blessing on His Word and our time together. Father in Heaven, we thank You for Sunday. We thank you for songs to sing. We thank you for people to sit alongside of with our Bibles open in our lap. Lord, would you open to us the truth of these words to our understanding. And then, Lord, may we be obedient to whatever needs to change. Lord, we thank you for our time together. Be our teacher. Help us be good students. And we ask all this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Now, most of the focus today for this portion of Scripture, several paragraphs, really has to do with the last verse. And I want to read back through that one more time, and this will give us a, 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 an objective to work toward as we move through these individual paragraphs that seem to have their own setting and their own place in time. There's a lot of events that need to be covered, but... It's all summarized at the end, much like Luke has been doing over and over. You, you, could, you could look back through from chapter 1 and find several. They're easy to spot, where it seems he takes a moment to summarize the development up to that point. Well, that's verse 31. A lot of them begin with the word so. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace which is in stark contrast with what we've read about so far. We'll we'll look at that later. But there's been no peace for the early church the last few chapters. There's been death. There's been ravaging of the church by this man named Saul that most people still don't believe that he is what he says he is, a Christian. And then if you keep reading, in addition to the peace, the church was being built up. You could say strengthened, matured, developed exercised and then if you keep reading and walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit those sound like opposites don't they fear is that a good thing well if it's the fear of God yes but then that's kind of offset by the comfort of the Holy Spirit and if you add all that together after the last comma you have two words referring to the church it multiplied and the target we're looking for today is a church is multiplied, says Acts chapter 9, when it finds itself edified. Now, if you're reading the ESV, you don't have the word edified, but if you've got the King James Version, that's the word for it. If I were to reread this in the King James, then had the church rest instead of peace throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria and were edified instead of built up. That's two ways to say the same thing. Peace, rest, or built up, edified. And then concludes the same way, walking in the fear of the Lord 
comfort of the Holy Ghost were multiplied. So a church may multiply the right way if they're edified according to this business of walking in the fear of God and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Now that'll take some explaining. So we're going to work our way toward that. Before so, look back at the first or last half rather of uh, verse number 19. And uh, the heading for this would be Saul preaches in the synagogue. For some days he's with the disciples in Damascus. That's an unnumbered amount of days. We, We don't really know how many it was. But then in verse 20, immediately he proclaims Jesus in the synagogue. So he wastes no time. This is on the heels of his conversion. And I think where we left off last time, it talked about his uh, eating a meal and regaining his strength. It's a beautiful way to show the practicality of so much of ministry. And the power of the Holy Spirit and a good meal, this man gets to business preaching Christ as the Son of God. Now... There's some questions regarding when he went to Arabia, how long he stayed there. We'll come back to that in a moment. But what we learn here in Acts, immediately he proclaims Jesus where? In the streets where no one knows the name of Jesus? Or in the synagogue where they've already got a starter kit from which to build upon? This man is the fulfillment of all that you've been raised, not just you, but your granddaddy and his granddaddy and his granddaddy and his granddaddy. He starts where the conversation's already rolling. And then, um, the word on the street is given here. All who heard were amazed. It means they're confused. They don't know what to believe. They say, is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem? He was killing people. What about Stephen? What about the, the extradition papers he has in his hand? Isn't that why he's here? Then you get to verse 22. But Saul increased all the more in strength confounded the Jews who live in Damascus, proving that Jesus was the Christ. And then Luke changes the subject again. Look at verse 23. When many days had passed. Not some days, but many days. So all we know is that many days is likely longer than some days. Do you agree? Like keeping things simple, right? How many were not told. But enough time... For these people that he's confounding in the previous paragraph to plot to kill him. Verse 24, but their plot became known. This was kind of like when we studied through Esther. There's a plot against the king and the plot is known and all the drama that was unfolding in there. This one to me as an adult is a lot less exciting than it was when I was a child because I remember... The flannel graph in Sunday school and Paul let down over the wall in a basket was like the whole lesson, right? It's just three, three verses here. Almost a side note. Oh, by the way, he preached long enough for them to get aggravated, decide to kill him, and then he escapes in a basket over the wall in the middle of the night. Somehow they found out. We could ask ourselves questions, but it's just three verses What is meant by many days? Some scholars are absolutely convinced that tucked under these many days account for what we read about in Galatians 1. Whether or not that's the case, there are people that differ. And it's not totally clear or we know for sure. But this is Paul speaking. But when he who had set me apart, called me by his grace in order that I may preach, 
I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. So he says he didn't immediately do something, though Acts says he immediately began teaching. Now you can teach without conferring with the professionals, as some may call them, divinely appointed, called by God, made apostles, witnesses in other words. What he says, I went away into Arabia and then returned to Damascus. And then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem. So was he in Arabia for three years or did he return to Damascus? And then after three years in Damascus, go to Jerusalem. It's hard to tell. But then he remains with Peter for 15 days. We'll get into a little bit of that later when we start trying to piece together the journeys of Paul and other timeline issues. Better question to ask is, what was Paul doing during that time? And that may be even more difficult to understand, unless he refers to some of the things he learned and then was later told not to talk about. We don't know for sure, but it kind of makes sense. If he's not consulting with man, it seems he may have been consulting with God himself in, in time of, 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 of waiting and learning. Gone away to seek the face of God? What would that mean? I don't know. Again, some of it is told not to write down. But I think one thing is at least clear. Paul didn't rush into everything. He rushed into preaching and teaching at the synagogue. And nobody's going to know more than Paul in the synagogue. And no one's going to know more about Jesus Christ than the man who's bent on killing those people who believe in him. So he's qualified to teach. But some of the things he's going to talk about later seem as though he had some type of access to the knowledge of God that we see from the other apostles. Paul's case was slightly different. And how do you measure the speed of spiritual growth? Slow and steady, I think. Would you think something wrong with your child if you brought them into this world and in six months they were six feet tall? And we've got a problem here. Or, if they don't grow ever. Sometimes we look at spiritual growth and it's far too fast. It can't be healthy. Sometimes it's far too slow. That's not healthy either. There's an appropriate speed. I think it's probably about, I don't know, the speed of life. Raising children, equipping people to go tell lost folks how to understand the gospel and trust Jesus Christ as a personal Savior. I think that takes about as long as they're in your home or more. Let's keep moving. Why did they want to kill Saul? Well, verse 22 says that he confounded them. They didn't like it when Jesus confounded them, especially those referred to as the Jews. There was an around-the-clock watch at the gates for Saul. Has he come in? Has he gone out? But the plot was known. Someone must have known or had access to the house on the wall. And then they let him in out over a basket. <clears throat> Nothing very glamorous. Certainly not the blockbuster ending that uh, Marvel would be happy with. You think? That's, that's, the, that's the finale? A basket? What can we learn from this? Three verses, its own paragraph. I think it interesting that the very people that Saul came to Damascus determined to put to death 
are the very ones helping him escape with his life. Now, that speaks volumes of the church of God, doesn't it? Once you're part of the family, you're taken care of. It's not mentioned here, but certainly it's the case. And then, perhaps there's another lesson that, uh, and I found this written down, I thought it was, I thought it was good. Perhaps the lesson is that a man who leaves a mountaintop conference with God, if that's where he was, might have to carry out his work in the most commonplace of ways, dependent on the help of others, and may find themselves in situations that lack dignity. That's basically ministerial work. You can't do it alone. It's not very glamorous. You swing between times of quiet and times of deafening madness. But it's the way Jesus lived his time here on earth. Spent himself completely up. Absolutely no dignity. And then the fellow that wrote this said, Maybe a person who isn't ready to start their mission or ministry in a basket with no one looking isn't ready to start at all. I thought, well, I wouldn't have put it that way. But I think I agree. Sometimes we look for all the glitz and glamour there's there's nothing here in acts as far as that the miracles look exciting but they'll be quick to tell you where the power for that comes from so the next paragraph beginning in verse 26 Saul is in Jerusalem with Barnabas we're introduced to Barnabas we're going to read a lot more about this guy I really like him wish there was a Barnabas cloning machine around the churches somewhere we could use so many more of them God gives us as many as we need And everything we're given is a good gift from him. Look at verse 26. When he come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. That means it didn't work. They were all afraid of him. They didn't believe that he was a disciple. So verse 26 is an honest verse. It's a little sad, though. They could have had more faith. They could have acted more Christ-like. They could have acted more like this fellow Barnabas. Look at verse 27. But Barnabas, so in contrast to the rest, this fellow took him and brought him to the apostles, declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, how at Damascus he preached boldly in the name of Jesus. He's basically vouching for him. How would you like to vouch for the most renowned killer of Christians to the rest of the Christians? That's a tough order, right? This, this is called putting oneself out there. But he does this. Lot to learn here. We, we could take a whole sermon and talk about what part Barnabas had done. Um, hospitality is where it starts. Model for church growth. Uh, could be. Meeting and interacting with people you don't know is a daunting task. Now, I'm sure Barnabas knew of Saul of Tarsus. There's a point at which they meet. I don't care if they're renowned or infamous or infamous or... Whatever you want to call it. Popular people are always tough to strike up a conversation with. Then again, you find out it's really not that big a deal. But especially if the people you don't know know each other, it's tough to be on the outside of that, isn't it? Everybody knows Saul, but for the wrong reason. A church family ought to be, of all places... A place where this type of thing should be easier. But it's going to take the work of a fellow like this. I'll show you in a second. 
Here's what happens. Barnabas first takes Paul to himself. Because before he could ever vouch for him in front of others, he's got to know him himself, right? So um, for Saul to be a friend of theirs, Saul has to be a friend of Barnabas. Now, this is tall order, but relationships matter. And every one of us needs to be on the lookout for those we can first take to ourselves before we can take to anyone else. That's the second stage. Then Barnabas took Paul to the apostles. This is introducing another to others. It's how you build relationships. Uh, I thought of this when I was writing these out that when my sister and I left for Florida to attend Word of Life Bible Institutes, first time away from home, first time we'd been away from home that long, I think it was the furthest distance we'd been away for that amount of time. There was a fellow already there. We were there a couple of weeks early for RA training. But this other fellow had beat us there. It was a couple of days before I knew that he'd only been there a couple of days before me. Because he introduced me to everybody on the whole campus. He's now my (laughs) brother-in-law. But I, I can't explain to you how helpful it was to know my professors before the time they stood in front of me to teach oh by the way that's the guy you haven't met yet he took me all over the place in that way he's acting a lot like Barnabas you've known people like that and you know how important it is church growth and remember the end of that verse where we conclude today it multiplied well for church to grow in numbers no matter the age, gender, ethnicity culture, you name it is the multiplication of relationships in Christ. That's how you define church growth. Multiplication of relationships in Christ. As the word spreads, as relationships are built. How does that happen? Whether you like it or not, the scriptures place the lion's share of that responsibility on you. Now, you must be equipped And that, scripturally, is on the shoulders of the teachers, prophets, shepherds, overseers. That's your your church governing leadership positions, called of God, rigorous list of qualifications. But once they've equipped you, you're the Barnabas. Go find somebody and bring them back. Sometimes we want to make it so complicated. Um, When I was in Bible school, it was like, find as many people as you can collar on the street. Tell them they're going to burn in hell unless they submit to these these, these three points in this tract. Scare them half to death and then come back and say, well, I guess I failed because they laughed at me or they blew smoke in my face or whatever. I think most of the time, Successful witnessing begins with, with, with a stone in one shoe. How does this guy operate the way he does when the world is the way it is? These little things that he'll say that seem to just make so much sense. Where does he get that stuff from? It's from the scriptures. Make a relationship and then bring them in here with a simple invitation. Have you ever heard anyone teach the Bible? 
You know, the people might call it preaching and stepping on toes and laying into... Have you ever heard someone just explain what it means? That's what we do here at church. We do it together. With our Bibles open. Everything's clear and transparent. And once we've understood what it means, we try to obey it. I think that's witnessing. That's what Barnabas is doing. Not that Paul needs to be saved. But he's introducing people. He's vouching for this guy. Your pastors, pastoral staff, responsibility under God is to preach and teach the scriptures, to edify the saints so that you can do the work of the ministry. A church will never be held accountable for the size of the group. Did you know that? It's not, there's no one in scripture. Pastoral staff, responsibility under God is to preach and teach the scriptures, to edify the saints so that you can do the work of the ministry. A church will never be held accountable for the size of the group. Did you know that? It's not, there's no one in scripture. Pastors are never held accountable to the size. They are held accountable to whether or not they equip that group of people. We will be responsible for how we equip you to take someone to yourself and then bring them to the family of God. Whether the group is big or small, the responsibility is the same. We're going to learn more about Barnabas in this way. But now let's look at 31. This is where we'll spend a bigger chunk of our time. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. All that business we just mentioned about equipment, equipping, teaching, that's what those words built up mean. Same as the word edified. Walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Spirit, it multiplied. So verse 31 is one more of these summary statements Luke has employed along the way. Ever so often he's been telling us things and then before moving on to newer things, he tells us what he has told us in a condensed form. That's what he's doing here. He tells us here that the church found itself in a time of peace or rest. This is immediately seen in contrast with what had been going on previously. Just go back to chapter 1. Sounded great until... All of a sudden, it wasn't great anymore. He started out with these uh, disputes over the widows and they're being fed. And who was getting fed and who wasn't getting fed such that they had to put together a group of people to fix that. Or the whole church may come off the rails. Small problem, but a big distraction. Then there was that business of lying about the offering and dropping dead in the church. Remember how we talked, how confounding it was at the end of that section that the church was growing when people are dropping dead for lying about how much money they gave? That's the secret to church growth. <laughs> right? It just doesn't happen that way anymore. It's not the secret to church growth. There is a secret to church growth, and that's faithful ministry. But then it really goes off the rails with persecution, martyrdom of Stephen, Saul of Tarsus, tearing the church up, hauling people out of their houses into court, trying his best to have them executed. So to say that the church has a time of peace would be quite the break. The ability to catch one's breath. Peace And peace is described in the areas that the gospel had gone to. We've traveled from Judea to Galilee into Samaria. 
And then the little place on the road with the Ethiopian on the way to Gaza. It's going further in chapter 10, but it, at this point, there's peace. What do you think the peace is for? And it's peace, I mean, the way chapter 9 began, Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples, but by the time we get down to 31, the church has peace. Ever take the time, um, this would be, I guess, if you take a trip to the mountains. Carolina has some wonderful mountains. Um, I like that it's got a beach on one end and mountains on the other. But if you've ever taken any of those hikes, the last time we had an opportunity, Corey and I was uh, at the cove, and it was freezing. And we decided... We'll just look at the picture instead of make our way all the way up there. Though we've, we've in Virginia, hiked all the way to Sharp Top. That's uh, at the Peaks of Otter. But what you've got is about 45 minutes. This one was, what, two hours worth of a hike, I think? David's been up there, right? No? Some of you have, and you ran into a bear, didn't you? Isn't that about right? At the Cove? We worried about that, too. But once you've, you've walked your two hours... You've negotiated with uh, the ankles God gave you, all the bumps and rocks and roots, past the bear. You get to the top. And for your effort, you get to see a mighty, fantastic view. And most people at that point think, this is great. Now we sit down, drink some water, take some pictures, and catch our breath. But the point is, none of you just stayed there and lived there, and never came back down because it was work. It's actually worse coming down than it is going up. The rest is, is necessary, but it's not a place to relax. And so is the same with the church. This was, was no ordinary rest here. It was, it's very short, and the church is back again headlong into fighting the world of darkness with the truth of the light of God. A lot of churches find themselves in places where through struggle and difficulty, pain and agony, they get to a spot where, hey, now we can take a break. Maybe a break is warranted, but there's never a place in the church where we should relax. Christ did not die for us to relax in our own place where we feel comfortable and then make that message of life something that's basically ingrown and never goes outside its walls. That should never happen. Uh, it's always a challenge to know that the gifts that God gives the church as a family are never meant to be used on ourselves. They're meant to be used in the prospect of introducing others so that they may know Christ too. Well, the same temptations that affect all of life affect the church too. Same as Peter on the mountain of transfiguration. You remember he interrupts, Jesus, we need to build three tabernacles here. This is great. And he's reprimanded for it. No, this is not the end all. The gospel must go out. You need to know your sinners. I'm going to pay for your sin. Trust in me and then tell others until I come back for you all. That's the way it works. And I was thinking while going through this, if... Sometimes I even hate bringing it up because I hate the word itself. 
but the miserable pandemic known as COVID and what it did to the church and how long it took. And we're not out of it completely yet. That took a lot to get through. And as grace gifts from God, I think Wake Chapel did pretty good with it. We didn't kill each other over it or act like we wanted to. And that we're together, again, is a, is a grace gift from Him and a testimony to faithful ministry. But now that it seems to be in the rearview mirror, most of it, is, is this the time? Oh, well, now we got a, we got some elbow room. Well, where are they if we've got elbow room? Plus, we've got all new faces in here who have some of those folks' seats. <laughs> from this position, that's funny. Not, not, not from your position. It's not funny at all. But if Wake Chapel has some, some need for concern, the church in America does too. A lot of folks have learned that it's easier to watch it at home in their pajamas, eating their breakfast, which during the pandemic was a gift from God. But now we need you back here because we're not the same without you. It's always nice to be at home when you can't be here. There's a difference between I can't be here and I'd rather be home. It's, it's just expansion and contraction. It's life. You get a rest. We see one here. But it's never to relax. The Lord didn't lead us through COVID to put some of us at home for good. He did that to teach us some things and then pile us back up again and then spread us out during the week so we can, like Barnabas, bring people in. It was Martin Luther that said that manure is better spread out. <laughs> when you pile it up, it just stinks. Right? We need to stink once a week, minimum. <laughs> and then spread out during the week. Let's keep going. That is the church resting. But he says also that the church is being built up. That means edified. Same word Jesus used when he said he would build his church. The phrase, the way it's listed here, actually involves a process and was being built up. It didn't happen in a day, right? We weren't built in a day. We didn't grow up in a day. We didn't learn what we know about the Bible in a day. There's also a passive element here. They weren't building themselves up. They were being built up by the preached word, the taught word, time together, the fellowship, all those things that are mentioned at the beginning of the book of Acts. And if we're going to use words, this would be called a word study. We find a word someplace and look at it in another place, see if they align. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. This is a good match. In Ephesians 4, this is what Paul says. And he, that's Christ, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers. For what? To equip the saints for the work of the ministry. That's the word equip. How are they being built up? By the ministry of the apostles. Saul, even Barnabas, building up the body of Christ until we attain to the unity of the faith, 
knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We never get there until glorification, but we're working on it either way. Now that sounds like a list of professionals, but the congregation is implied here too. Stephen, Philip, Barnabas, they weren't professionals. And notice who's doing the work of the ministry. We already mentioned this, but verse 12 of Ephesians 4, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So the local church, we're going to see this even more clearly as we move through Acts, is the special provision of Christ for His children. You want to know how much the Lord loves you? If you find yourself in a good church, that's how much He loves you. So you can love, be loved of Him through each other. Taught about Him through each other. Weep with those who weep. Laugh with those who laugh. For discipline, fellowship, worship, instruction, service, and on and on. There was no such thing in the New Testament as a believer that was not part of a local gathering of Christians. The metaphors of the New Testament would never make sense any other way. You can't describe a body in pieces, a flock scattered, a household divided, or a building that's broken down. Those are the words described of the church as a cohesive unit, all needing each other. Strengths offset by weaknesses. So how do we wrap this up? When God is at work in the congregation of His people, such that He's at work in this reference, Acts chapter 9, it's being built up. They're walking in the fear of God. They're in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. They're multiplying. When God is at work in the congregation of His people, those people will walk before God in a reverence to Him. That's fear. And in thanksgiving for the resources He's provided. That's the comfort. As such, it'll be easy to see the connection between edification and multiplication. A church that's built up, strong, edified, they know their Bibles. Unless they're just out in the middle of nowhere. And I used to, you remember the phrase Timbuktu? That's supposed to be nowhere, right? The day I met the chair of... uh, search committee responsible for getting me here, I also met a man from Timbuktu. <laughs> for real. Who knows the Lord? Now, if you think Fuquay Varina is the uttermost parts of the world, Timbuktu is actually the uttermost parts of the world. It's easy to see the connection between edification and multiplication. Because you just see people coming from places you would never account for the reason why they're coming. And, and if... i put it this way. It's not hard to draw a crowd. It's just one simple thing. Give people what they want. A lot of business startups do that and they find it's way too expensive because people can want a lot and you can't deliver on it. A lot of churches fold thinking they can make people happy. You can't. What you've got to do to have a church in a position where God will bring people in is just teach God's Word. And they'll come in weird and strange ways. If you're going to do it God's way, the way the Bible outlines it, you've got to know that only God can bring the growth because people aren't drawn to the foolishness of preaching. And if I didn't believe that, I certainly would never have decided 
to follow a calling that looks like this. I can't sell stuff. I can't motivate. I have no skill of rhetoric. But some good men taught me what this means, and for some reason, people tell me it makes sense when I explain it. Well, blame that on the Lord. But it's the only way that you can grow a church. Here's the thing I wanted to boil all this down to. It's just one thought. It's an illustration. Think through it. Tell me how you think it applies. Have you ever thought through the possibility, and I think it's much more than a possibility, that God may only be willing to trust spiritual babies to families that are capable of caring for them? What I mean by spiritual babies, a newborn in Christ. Maybe someone who's moved to this town. They haven't been a Christian very long. Do you think it matters to God that they be put in a place, in a family that can take care of them? Have you ever been through the adoption process with someone? Maybe some of you have yourselves. Corey and I were let in on a secret with the couple only to pray. We didn't tell a word. It's been years since. Seen the child since. But the rigor of coughing up your whole life's history, your bank accounts, references, all these things, to make sure to this agency that you're qualified to hand over life's most important resource, life itself, child. So would it matter to the Lord that the church he's looking to adopt his newborn would be built up, strengthened, know their Bibles, love each other. I would think if there were such things, God would fill them slam-packed full of his children. Wouldn't you? I think that's what this passage is pointing us to. And then you've got the fear of God... And the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Fear of God's righteous standard. That's His holiness. I can't measure up to it. I fall miserably short. I need Christ's blood to even have a chance of heaven. And then you've got the comfort of knowing that you've been adopted as the, a child of the King after having your sins paid for. So the fear of God, comfort of the Holy Spirit, living between fear and comfort. That's where I believe multiplication takes place in spades. So I think we should pray for this. I hope COVID's over. I really do. But even if it's not, there's other stuff down the road that's not pleasant. What we need to be doing is being as faithfully involved and engaged in the business for which Christ died as we possibly can. Get our affairs in order as the Bible lays them out and then ready ourselves for growth should the Lord bring it. He might not. Some churches grow by shrinking and get rid of a lot of people who aren't believers. God can do that too. That's another sermon. But folks, I think we're positioned to see God outdo Himself if we'll be faithful. Let's pray to that end. Father in heaven, thank you for a a grouping of, of different short paragraphs summarized so beautifully that people walking in the fear of God and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit 
saw their numbers increase. All of the glory goes to you. There's no magic in our, our, our gathering or what's unique about any one local church. What matters whether or not is that they are witnesses to what you told them. Lord, would you be pleased to use us as witnesses? Would you be pleased to glorify yourself in what is said and done here? And Lord, we thank you for a day in your house, on your day with your people, reading your word. Lord, as we sing and as we leave, Lord, set the banquet table and may we be inviting guests. We ask all this in your precious name. Amen.